Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Daniel, it's so great to have you on the show today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, a lot of things we can talk about. You're a very, a very interesting guy, which is why I wanted to get you on this show. I knew there was lots of areas that we could discuss. I'd like to first start talking a little bit about your childhood because you had a very interesting educational path, isn't that right? Or a different, yeah, a diff- different educational path. Different and interesting. Yeah, both. Yeah, tell me a little bit about it and uh, and sort of how you saw the education system. Yeah, I didn't know much about the education system because I wasn't exposed to it. I was uh, I was home taught growing up, and I went to public school for a very brief period a few times as an experiment in a few different private schools, but uh, the vast majority of my childhood education was homeschooled. And the reason was my parents were kind of educational philosophers and were interested to see what would happen if a kid didn't have any fixed curriculum and was just exposed to all the things they could be exposed to and then their interests were facilitated. So it was a very kind of constructivist idea. So that was it. I didn't have a certain amount of social studies and geography and math and handwriting and English. I It really was just a facilitation of questions and fascination and interest. So the few times that I did go to school, there were obviously gaps in knowledge that everyone else was learning. Like I had never shown much interest growing up in American history and understanding states and capitals and that kind of thing. There were areas where I was studying things that were well outside of the scope of anything that would normally be touched in school. And so we didn't, it didn't translate very well. What was of course wonderful about it was I got to not only go very deep in the areas that I had innate interest 
but my actual interest in life itself was fostered by having the interesting topics supported and not being forced to be focused on stuff that was uninteresting. Yeah, so it sounds like you were a pretty curious person and you got a chance to actually run with that as opposed to being held back by that. The, the term curious person and child are synonymous. That's a good point. That's a good point. You do see individual differences, though, in curiosity, and maybe sure. that is partly environmental supportive, and as well as I think genetics do play a role, you know, in terms of dopamine production and their genes that code for dopamine. But I, I think that that's a good point. In a lot of ways, from an evolutionary perspective, you need curiosity, right? You need or to adapt. I mean, if you have a child who's not going to explore their environment at all, it'll uh, the child will not be able to adapt at all. What do you study in college? And I studied uh, math, physics, philosophy in undergrad, psychology, more philosophy in graduate school, but then getting into ecology, biology, medicine, complex systems. Most of that wasn't in a formal academic situation. It was in independent studies and research environments. For instance, medicine was working with some different uh, diagnostic laboratories, working with medical doctors and clinics oh. on complex cases, and working to try and find insights that were outside of the scope of what we currently had insights on. But what was the college you went to? Undergrad was Undergrad. the uh, Maharishi University. In what? Maharishi University. Where's that located? It's in Iowa, Fairfield, okay. Iowa. So it was a very kind of unique school that was focused on studying the sciences with a deeper thought process around subject-object relationship. Cool. So when did you start to think about putting together this Neurohacker Collective? How did that come about? Neurohacker is a relatively recent project. We started it about three years ago. And I have gotten into integrative medicine and kind of diagnostic medicine, therapeutic medicine, especially for cases that both allopathic and integrative medicine didn't have adequate solutions yet, mm -hmm. partially because of my own diagnosed illnesses that didn't have adequate solutions that I had to work on, and some of which had neurodegenerative components. So I got deep into understanding how neuroregulatory systems work, how dysfunction works. And because there weren't any adequate solutions offered anywhere, of course, the only like meaningful option was see if novel insights can be generated by approaching it in a different way. Mm -hmm. And so I started applying cybernetic theory. How do the bottom-up and top-down regulatory systems in the human organism work and uh, whole systems and complexity theory? How do all of the different omics and all of the different body systems interact and have cascade effects and you know, et cetera? And it ended up leading to a set of hypotheses about how health works, how aging works, and how illness works. And then how illness in a case like mine could have worked led to me being able to do some kind of unique research diagnostics, find things out that traditional medicine had not that led to me actually being able to treat and reverse the conditions I had that were, you know, reverse autoimmune antibodies, reverse things that are not usually medically thought of as reversible, which led to me then doing that with a lot of other people who had, you know, working with various integrative doctors who had also what are traditionally deemed as uncurable cases and getting to see that we could reliably reverse different kinds of pathology. And then this was very meaningful and that we could address not only physical pathology, but meaningfully affect people's cognitive and psychological function because with chronic disease, with autoimmune and neurodegen, people's cognitive capacity and their emotional status is always affected. And it's affected in ways that have to be supported for them to be able to do what it takes to actually do the rest of the treatments, to have the focus, drive, et cetera, to do generally a meaningful amount of work. 
And so that's what really kind of led into an integrative approach to the future of psychopharmacology, psychoneuroimmunology, psychiatry, and then starting to look at not just addressing issues to come up to baseline, but also could we enhance baseline? So this is kind of the intersection with biologic transhumanism. Can we do fundamental bio-optimization? And that then intersected with the other think tank work I had been doing while I was working in complex systems, which is how do we support the major transitions in civilization writ large that need to happen for environmental sustainability, for you know major macro issues that we're addressing. And there's economic shifts, there's governance shifts, there's infrastructure and technology shifts that have to happen. But there's also recognizing that all of the major issues that we're wanting to address are human behavior mediated. Mm-hmm. And all of the new capacities we're wanting to bring about are also going to be human behavior mediated. So then looking at the human physiological and psychological predispositions for more omniconsiderate or shittier behavior, and what can we do to be able to predispose on the physiology side, predispose human hardware towards increased complexity of thinking, perspective taking capacity and perspective synthesis capacity, emotional resilience, et cetera, all the things that would you know, decrease the predisposition for harm externalizing behavior and increase the predisposition and capacity for omniconsiderate behavior. What do you think are some of the, the aspects of human nature that get in the way of compassion and kindness? What are some of the biggest blocks? It's going to be a very deep question that we're probably going to go into a a meaningful rabbit hole if we do, because the topic of human nature versus how that nature is expressed is a very deep one. What is human nature? If by that we mean genetics, who cares? Because genetic expression ends up changing it radically. Our genetics largely predispose neuroplasticity so we can be radically mimetic creatures. If by nature we mean that which is inexorably unchangeable, well, that whole concept is nonsense in a genetic engineering world. One of the things I love about CRISPR, even though I actually don't think we're nearly as close to being able to utilize CRISPR safely as we think we are, but one of the things I love about it as a thought experiment is as soon as we are now realistically thinking about being able to change the genome, our whole idea of nature has to change conceptually. It's a great thought experiment to say, well, even if we did evolve to have inexorable competitive or whatever traits. Now, do we want to keep those or not? When you have that level of exponential tech where you can change the connectome, change the genome, the level of existentialism and ethics to say what is a desirable set of traits becomes forefront, right? You have to address it. And of course, science doesn't do desirable, right? It does what is, not what was historically. So how do we actually make a scientifically commensurate ethics and existentialism as part of the core of our work? But If I was to just fast forward over all of the subtleties of it and say, what do I think are the aspects of human nature that are inexorably problematic? I would say none. I think there's a lot of aspects of human nature that lead to problems when the right conditioning is there. But I think other sets of conditioning lead to fundamentally different expressions of that same nature. And so there is a propensity for human agency for the impulse to self-actualize. If that is growing up in the context of zero-sum games and finite games from a game-theoretic perspective, that can look like lack of empathy, pathological competition, selfishness. If you're growing up in the context and you're neuroplastically wiring in the contexts of positive-sum games where winning doesn't require others losing, which then requires numbing to the pain of others losing, i.e. shutting off empathy, 
And in infinite games where you are not winning to win, but you're winning to keep playing, right? What does it mean to keep playing so you can't externalize harm? When you change the game theoretic constructs, I think the fundamental impulse to agency, self-expression and actualization, and the fundamental impulse to communion, connecting with others, can be simultaneously optimized without any fundamental dichotomy. So the problems are at a game theoretic level, which means an economic worldview, mimetic structural level, not a which then affect, of course, genetic expression, but are not fundamentally at a genetic expression level. Sure. I definitely hear what you're saying. And it, as you know, I'm a big fan of Abraham Maslow's thinking, and you, you just used the term self-actualization. And you know, when he talked about is man fundamentally good or, or bad, he says he thinks we're neutral. And you know, it, it just depends on what are the sort of conditions that are getting what needs met and what needs not met. So I do like to think of it from a needs perspective. It looks like you kind of would agree with that sort of perspective of neutrality in a way, or what part of the human condition do Better we want to highlight? I think that saying neutral is fair, meaning we can have an environment, say we go to some part of North Africa where female genital mutilation is ubiquitous, or we go to the dark ages, we're burning women as witches was ubiquitous, we can now look at that from outside or retrospective as a like ubiquitous insanity, right? Of the, sure. the whole population. Sure. They were like infected with a psychopathologic set of means. We, when we look today at the fact that we externalize harm to the environment with almost every single action we do, and we still think that war is a reasonable solution to differences, and we step over homeless people while we go get more shit, future generations will see us as ubiquitously insane, psychopathologic. Mimetically. I'm sure of that. Yeah. And yet, of course, when anyone's in their ubiquitous psychopathology, it's just called normal. So we obviously have the possibility for a level of terrible shit, ter you know, like scientifically optimized torture that no other animal had. We also have the capacity for levels of insight and rapture and charity and selflessness and you no know, other animals. I mean, we're, we're these just radical potential capacities. But I wouldn't say we're neutral because universe isn't neutral. The nature of evolution itself is that it selects for more orderly complexity that has new emergent properties, and it doesn't select for the opposite, right? Like there is a macro telos directionality to evolution that goes from non-life to life, from prokaryote to eukaryote, from plant to neurology, from reptilian, mammalian, etc. So life isn't neutral. Change is moving in an orderly complexity direction. And with humans right now, look, we're at this very interesting place where we can actually understand that because of our capacity for abstraction and choose to participate with it. And our technological capacity is big enough that if we don't, we'll self-destruct. And so we're at a very unique point right now at the beginning of the escape philosophy on exponential tech, where we have existential tech, right? Nuke was the beginning, but now it's becoming decentralized existential tech. So we will either have the negative traits that we have had for a long time self-destruct us, mm -hmm. or we will emerge into fundamentally net positive traits because it's the only way to make it through. So this is cool. So we do have existential tech and you're in a lot of ways developing the opposite of that. What do you call that? What's the opposite of existential tech? Technology that enhances us in a way that makes us more pro-social and cooperative. What is that called? You could call it omni-considerate tech. Omni-consideration is a term that you could apply at different scales. When we're thinking about working in human biology, medicine, well-being, 
omniconsideration would mean what are all the pathways that are affected by this chemical or this therapy other than the ones that we're intentionally affecting, which are usually what we call side effects, and how can we be considered across the entire system, including what will the effects be in the future? Are we downregulating an internal regulatory system or are we upregulating its capacity or so omniconsiderate at the level of human physiology would be just factoring all the externalities progressively better. Omniconsiderate at the level of the environment would be factoring all the externalities of what affects the whole supply chain, the environment, right? Omniconsiderate at the top level is recognizing that we are not really separate parts that can think of our own advantage and disadvantage and win-lose games separately, but we interaffect each other powerfully enough and we interaffect the biosphere powerfully enough that we are all really emergent properties of the biosphere, emergent properties of the whole. So we have to think about the balance sheet of the whole thing, right? Of civilization and the whole, how do we support that? That's omni-consideration applied to tech and choice-making writ large. We had Dan Siegel on this podcast where we had a very similar conversation about uh, the interconnectedness of, of all life forms. But the thing is, I mean, it must be frustrating. You must be frustrated. You know, I mean, you, you see something, you kind of see a truth that I think, you know, you're quite right. I think a lot of people take this view as well. I think a, a lot of Buddhists uh, take that view I mean, kind of see that. But there's so much in the world of people that refuse to see that view. I mean, the American politics right now is, you know, uh, one example of this polarization seems to be hot right now, you know, for lack of a better word. And so it must be really frustrating. And what do you think we can do to convince people on the level at which they will be receptive to it? How can we have them see that? Truth? Let, me, let me approach that question a slightly different way. American politics isn't just dysfunctional, it's broken, right? It was breaking for some time. And in the last election, we got to see the Republican Party not put forward good qualified candidates. The Democratic Party take people's favorite candidate and not support them and support someone who is highly unfavored. We got to see the two-party system as a whole break down. Like it was the beauty of what happened was what only a few people were really acutely aware of, almost everybody became acutely aware of, which is that it is a no longer adequate system for how we do governance. And so we see this kind of increasing chaos there, not just in the US, but with Brexit, with issues in Korea, with issues in Russia, like around the world, we can see a movement towards nationalism because of problems with globalism, but also problems with nationalism. Like we didn't have 7 billion people ever, right? We only hit a billion people in 1815 for the first time after two and a half million years of homes. And we didn't have this level of technology per capita in the world, this much resource per capita. So we're in a fundamentally different scenario than we've ever been. And we need a different kind of decision-making, a different kind of economics. And it would take us a while to get into it. But in the next 15 years, 30% of all jobs will become obsolete from technological automation. That is a That will be a complete failure of capitalism unless we do something like a basic income. Because not only – you won't be able to move people to other jobs because AI will be automating other jobs. So you've got guys like Elon yeah. who are famous capitalists saying go to basic income, which is not capitalism. And it's also not long-term sustainable. The critiques of it are also warranted. It's on the path to something that is not – Marxist, socialist, capitalist, but fundamentally new stuff that's mediated by new technological capacities we didn't have in previous levels of economic theory. So I don't think it's just about motivating people to see something different because the, the thing that we need to move to hasn't been seeable, right? It's emerging. It's about now actually developing what solutions for 
a ongoingly viable civilization in the presence of the technological power we have, what that actually looks like, and then building that so it's demonstrated success creates an exodus from the failing system to a viable system. I mean, there is a, in terms of the seeing aspect and seeing different perspectives, I mean something more fundamental, and that's just seeing the value of not being selfish. There is this innate human tendency that to be selfish. And I mean, I hear you talking and I hear someone who's making abstract arguments that are not implication of you and only you. But people, I just see a lot everywhere. I see people who are making decisions solely based on them and only them. And that's obviously problematic for them in the long run and the rest of the planet. But it's hard to convince people of that because of these strong ego protection drives. You notice that as a kid, they might think about them and only them. And then maybe as a parent, they think about them and their kids, right? As someone who stepped deeply into a religious organization, they think about them and their people, whatever their religious group is. If they become nationalist in a deep way as a citizen, they think about them and their people as a citizenship or as a race. So this movement from egocentric to ethnocentric to, right, there's, a, there's identity of who we are connected to that expands. And the direction of evolution is more inclusivity than to world-centric and cosmocentric. How do we recognize more that we're interconnected with and include that in our circle of care and choice making? I think the key thing to recognize right now is, and this is a hard one, but civilization, the main ways that we have done civilization so far are coming to an end and fundamentally new systems will emerge if we are to continue making it. If you talk to people who are studying coral and ocean acidification, dead zones in the ocean, ocean temperature rays, etc., they'll say we have a very short number of years to make the oceans cooler than they currently are because the coral are actually dying slowly at the current temperature and we depend on them, the existing phytoplankton that supports the atmosphere. The same is true across so many, you know, 15 years to 30% of the jobs gone. That means a switch off of capitalism in a very short time frame where climate change is not a Chinese issue or an Indian issue or a U.S. issue. It is a human on earth issue and more than human, right? It's like a mammal on earth issue. So is nuclear disarmament. So are the threats of exponential tech. We've never had a time in the history of the world where all of our issues were interconnected, global, and existential. You had like Gandhi dealing with an Indian issue. You had people leaving Britain to go find some new land to start America. There's no new land to go find somewhere else. You can't leave the problem. And you can't say somebody else can continue to be problematic like any country continuing in the wrong direction with species extinction or climate change strategies is enough to take us over the tipping point. So we're at this unique place where our global interconnectedness and power is such that we either all collectively identify that we're in this together on this tiny little bitty spaceship called Earth floating through this vast cosmos, and we upregulate how we do everything to have no externalities, to be omnipositive, or we all don't make it together. Basically, win-lose games are over because we are too big for the playing field. What it takes to beat the other guy actually destroys the whole playing field. So now we move into either win or lose-lose games. But it's one of those two, win-win or lose-lose. Yeah. In in order to have that perspective, you really have to take the long perspective beyond – you have to be able to imagine the planet and care about the planet beyond your your very puny 80 years max if you're lucky, you know, or 100 years in max, uh, you know, perspective. You have have to think about beyond that. And and I don't think a lot of people really – 
our thinking beyond that. If you look at the fact that we're looking at geoengineering, which could have radical consequences to our atmosphere and the world for many generations because we are so desperate about temperature change in the next few years, the issue with coral is being addressed in the next five years. Mm. It's not eight years. The issue with everyone losing their current jobs is the next 15 years. This is this is if people have children, before their children grow up, they won't be growing up into a world anything like the one they grew up in. So you actually don't need very long-range thinking. You just need to pull the ostrich head out of the sand, actually have a look and say, fuck, hmm. what does it actually take to close the gap between the trajectory we're on and the one we need to be into? No, that's fair. There are, certainly are issues that, are, that, that we need to be awakened to within right now. No, yeah. I, I definitely uh, take that point. We talk about nootropics and define that. That's going to be a new term to a lot of our listeners, so I don't want to just throw that word out there. Can you explain what that word means and what people are doing in that space? Sure. Nootropic uh, is a term that was defined with the development of a molecule called paracetam. It's the beginning of the research in this area uh, really deeply, which means a chemical that can enhance some aspect of cognitive capability beyond normal baseline without meaningfully negative side effects. And it's a rough definition, but that's still generally how it's used. So some aspect of cognitive enhancement could mean short-term memory or working memory or long-term memory or focus or concentration or creativity or analysis or synthesis or, you know, some of those things, and hopefully more of them. And beyond baseline means not just taking someone who has brain fog and getting them back to normal capacity which say someone has a deficiency of some key nutrient the brain needs, supplementing those brain nutrients could get someone back up to baseline, but it's not going to get them beyond baseline because that's part of the evolutionary environment that evolved to baseline. These are going to be things that are modulating, modifying some aspect of normal physiology. Typically, when you modify normal physiology, there is some trade-off effect that occurs where you get some negative somewhere else. So the idea that you can enhance something beyond baseline and not have a meaningful negative is this kind of like magical unicorn idea, but it actually seems to be demonstrating itself as true in a number of areas. Where, and this is in contradistinction to both, let's say, brain nutrients that would just bring you back up to baseline if you were deficient, mm -hmm. or other forms of medicine that would bring you up back up to baseline if there's some pathophysiology, or say you're dealing with anti-inflammation of brain or inflammation or whatever, or some smart drugs that can increase some aspect of uh, function beyond baseline, but have meaningful consequences, methamphetamine, Adderall, et cetera, right? And depending upon someone's physiology, these have the ability to modify dopamine, modify acetylcholine, whatever it is, depending upon what kind of drug it is. But typically, those single drug synthetic mechanisms, they work through some process that overrides the way the body naturally produced that chemical, that transmitter, which means if you use them long term, you can get down regulation and dependence, i.e. addiction. And oftentimes, they're modifying one chemical in a way where that chemical is getting kind of fixed based on an external stimulus, so you're less adaptive. And that chemical that was in a dynamic set of ratios with a bunch of other chemicals, the other chemicals aren't also being affected. So in other words, you'll get a narrow set of positive effects. It's only going to affect some aspects of cognitive function. Mm -hmm. You can get side effects and downregulation. So nootropics are the exploration into how to upregulate things, ideally, lastingly, at minimum, uh, without lasting negatives. Do we have data on the long-term effects of trying nootropics, like over the lifespan? Some. We have... Paracetam, starting that field, was started 
uh, you know, was studied in the early 60s. And so we now have people who've had multi-year and multi-decade use. And we have different kinds of both performative tests as well as, you know, brain scans, blood chemistry, mm-hmm. many other racetams, many other ampicines, different categories of nootropics have longer-term data, but we haven't been able to study this field as well as we would study normal things in medicine because our kind of Western modern model for medicine is a disease-based model where if there is a disease, we're looking at treating the disease and we get a lot of funding because we'll be able to get FDA approval and then you know sell a drug. So for enhancement, where you're not treating a disease, you're not going to be able to get FDA approval. You're not going to be able to sell it as a drug. And there's a whole set of like our whole process of studies factors, what we call risk benefit ratio, where you're willing to have some risk in the study because there is a disease that if you don't treat, there's a risk of keeping it. And so how do we do risk benefit ratio for enhancement? It's a totally new topic, but it's a topic that's being explored everywhere in transhumanism right now, brain chip implants, you know, gene therapy, et cetera. And the tropics are one of those fields. So there's a lot of quantified self data, kind of like the early people in steroids who made yeah. a lot of mistakes, but then actually learned a lot about endocrinology that the endocrinologists couldn't learn that have advanced the field of endocrinology. And now made, you know, we have SARMs today that have the same positive effect with a tiny fraction of the negative effects of the early anabolic steroids that came about through that kind of citizen science testing, of course, at the cost of some of the people. Nootropics has had a similar curve. And so we have data, but the data is not as deep, long-term, and robust as we would like it to be, and it will be. Yeah, I've been reading a lot of blogs from people who have been who are uh, treating themselves as human guinea pigs and trying lots of things. I have to say, I have to thank you for introducing me to the whole idea of nootropics. It's a fascinating world, and it really has uh, inspired me. I would say to to really understand what you know. There clearly are some nootropics that are more well studied than others. That's for sure, and. I don't think they're all on an equal footing. I don't think you would say they are at all. Now, you created something called Qualia, right? This was very well-researched. So you you put together 40 ingredients, is that right, that are synergistic with each other? Yeah, the current version of Qualia has uh, 42 ingredients, but we ran many, many, many different iterations and versions. So what's the difference between nootropics and what are called smart drugs? The difference between nootropics and SSRIs? For instance, what are the difference between those? So just to be explicit about something that's probably obvious. So medical disclaimer part, nothing that we're sharing here is medical advice. I'm not a medical doctor. Thank you for saying that. Your podcast and me and Neurohacker aren't giving medical advice, et cetera. So this is just general information and anything that one wants to explore regarding medicine, they should go check with a qualified profession. On that front, SSRIs are actually a FDA-approved medicine for treating certain diagnosed illnesses, primarily psychiatric and some other illnesses. And they are one category of psychiatric med. There's other meds that modify serotonin in nearly opposite ways, SSREs and tricyclics do different things. There's dopamine modifying, GABA modifying, et cetera, kind of things in the in the field of psychiatry, psychopharmacology. Smart drugs is a term that generally means a pharmaceutical that is being used for an off-label purpose, meaning a doctor didn't give somebody drug for this purpose, but an off-label purpose for enhancing some aspect of cognitive function. And these will usually either be narcolepsy drugs that are going to promote wakefulness, the eugeroics, modafinil, armodafinil, those kinds of things. They will be 
sometimes anti-Alzheimer's, anti-Parkinson's kinds of things, L-DOPA and Donepazil, things like that, or psychiatric meds, Welbutrin, Adderall, Depranil. And some of these can actually be balancing for certain people's physiology, depending upon what's out of balance. But most of the time, these will serve some kind of psychostimulatory role in a way that will lead to long-term instability. And the risk-benefit is deemed worthwhile in the current field of medicine because it's addressing some real dysfunction for somebody. But in general, I don't recommend much in the way of smart drugs. And it doesn't mean that there's no positive application of them, but I recommend people be highly educated before exploring and then explore conservatively. I appreciate that. What I'm trying to understand is how is the difference between like your qualia nootropics in general, they do affect and they do target uh, neurotransmitters. They do target like dopamine production, serotonin production. That's exactly what SSRIs would target serotonin production. How is that different? So let's take a look at dopamine, for instance. It's my favorite. It's my favorite molecule. Yeah, it is a favorite for everybody. The dopamine opioid axis, right? The kind of pain, pleasure, reward circuit axis is one of the deepest evolutionary biology axes in nervous systems for knowing what to avoid and what to go towards. And so major aspects of how pain, pleasure, dynamics work, etc. are there. Most OCD addiction is a dysregulation of that system. It's a profoundly deep system, even if someone also has serotonin or GABA or other things to address. So dopamine is the first of the catecholamines. So it converts to norepinephrine and then to epinephrine. And those are all kind of stimulatory neurotransmitters. Dopamine has a lot to do with focus, attention, concentration, also pattern analysis and pattern recognition, patternicity. It's why if it's excessive, you can get false pattern recognition, which we think of as schizophrenia. Apophenia. Yeah. And if it's deficient, you'll have lack of drive, lack of motivation, as well as inability to recognize patterns adequately. So underperformance. It's not more or less that we're interested in. It is the adaptiveness, right? It's how the dopamine process can self-regulate well. Because when you're trying to relax and fall asleep, you don't want to have dopamine peaking. You want it to be able to chill. And when you're trying to concentrate, you want your body to be able to up-regulate. So one thing is rather than give someone a dopamine agonist that is going to elevate dopamine kind of no matter what, we would like to be able to give precursors and then the uh, conversion factors on those precursors and other things that support your body's dopaminergic processes so that it can do its own. Basically, you think about it has the body has an internal and endogenous regulatory system. How do we support that regulatory system to self-regulate better? So with dopamine, dopamine is you have an essential amino acid phenylalanine that gets converted to tyrosine, that gets converted to acetyltyrosine, that gets converted to L-dopa, that gets converted to dopamine. It then has to travel across a synapse where it's broken down by chemicals like MAOB, and then it has to get uptaken in the postsynaptic dopamine receptors, and there's differential uptake in the D1, D2, D3 receptors that affect how it processes. And it can also be broken down by hydroxylase and norepinephrine, et cetera. So if someone doesn't have enough phenylalanine, enough tyrosine, if they don't have enough of the phosphorylated version of B6 that helps convert, or vitamin C or copper that helps convert, amino acids into L-DOPA and then into dopamine. If their MAOB levels are excessively high or their hydroxylase is high, these are all going to lead to imbalances in their own regulatory systems. So we were looking at 
common regulatory difficulties and how to be able to support the system to have increased regulatory robustness. And so therefore, you're less likely to see gross side effects. Yeah. Right. So think about, you know, when I when I was talking about the amino acids, the vitamins and minerals that were necessary as cofactors, plus the synaptic transmission, plus the receptor site modulation, we're looking at multiple steps across a whole pathway and we're seeing where are the rate limiting effects and how can we support those. And but then that's just dopamine, right? And so increased concentration without increased working memory ends up being pretty lame. And so increased working memory is mostly not dopamine mod supported, right? It's mostly mediated by acetylcholine and other transmitters. Yeah, and the comp T. Yeah. yeah. Well so that now we're looking at enzymes yeah, again. Yeah, right? yeah. And so if we're wanting to increase short term and long term and working memory and intensity of focus and yeah. concentration, but also the capacity for task switching. What we did was we kind of modeled from a cognitive science perspective, what are all the things we're wanting to affect that are what people call the synergy of those things are these cognitively available creative productive flow states. Mm -hmm. If we looked at what are the underlying physiologic pathways that mediate those, and then how do we support those pathways, then let's look at synergies between them. Sounds like a fair approach. Well, I do wonder though, okay, someone listening to this could be like, well, like, how are you, why are you, why do you have so much confidence? You were not formally trained. You're not, you could imagine a doctor listening to this and, and just immediately dismissing this whole thing and saying, well, look, I'm not even going to listen to this because um, he, he didn't even go through med school. What do you say to, you know, so I was like, like, why are you so confident in what you're saying? Well, having a lot of respect for uh, what we consider better methods of interdisciplinary education than traditional specialist education usually does. We also have a lot of respect for people that are the cutting edge of their specialties and have formally trained in it. So, you know, this wasn't developed in isolation. This development was working with many doctors where we were working in integrated facilities running pre and post blood labs. And we actually started with, you know, having some medical directors that wanted to play with us and particularly with patients they were having a hard time with. And we said, we, so again, risk benefit made sense to them because they were having a hard time with them said, we, we think we've got an approach that could help. And so we were customizing chemistry based on looking at their genome, their clinical chemistry, their clinical intake, et cetera, and then getting to see really profound shifts, not just in subjective reporting, but in those same biometrics being tested again. And so then that that's actually where we started in the formulation process and then started to say, well, what things are pretty common across most people who have similar desires or symptomology that we could before getting into personalized medicine, be able to meaningfully affect at scale. So those doctors were contributing to the insight of you know, how we did formulation. And then we've had a number of PhD neuroscientists of different disciplines, neurochemists, computational neuroscientists, et cetera, look at what we're doing, give us feedback on it. A number of different kinds of doctors, psychiatrists and integrative MDs and you know, et cetera, look at it and give us feedback on it. Many doctors just find what we were doing, start using it in their clinics and contact us and saying, you know, here are the effects we're seeing in patients. They were very positive. So we're actually just starting uh, to put together a program to kind of like harvest this data better, how we can do some distributed science. And of course, once we came to a place that we felt good with our own internal testing on formulation, which had many rounds, we did a formal safety data sheet. We had, you know, which looked at all of the research, meta-analysis, structured review on all the ingredients and nice. dosage and et cetera. 
And we had um, pharmacists look at it, doctors look at it, PhD neurochemists look at it, et cetera. And I, uh, I went through, you know, I don't take anything at face value, right? So, I mean, I, t- I looked every researched every single one of the ingredients and I like spent like a day on each one. I was like, because that one's very potent. It's very potent. So racetam, starting with paracetam, and then there's many other racetams, aniracetam, paracetam, do different things, but their primary effect is upregulating acetylcholine uptake in the NMDA complex. So they're learning, uh, right? That helps with learning and memory. Learning, memory, working memory, but also sensory motor nerve capacity. Mm. And so they are allosteric modulators of the NMDA complex. And then which racetam will have differential effects on GABA receptors or dopamine receptors, or et cetera. Yeah. Uh, so racetams are really the first kind of major area of nootropics that people get into when anyone gets into nootropic. And then because they're they're affecting the postsynaptic neurons uptake of acetylcholine, then they'll usually start stacking them with some choline donors, maybe some acetyl group donors, and then maybe some things to help the acetylcholine get across the synapse, like acetylcholine esterase inhibitors. And so, you know, that's how you can kind of start to stack the pathway for acetylcholine. The next major category that people really uh, kind of commonly get into with nootropics that are very meaningful are ampokines, which are glutamate uptake on the postsynaptic neuron, so modulators of the AMPA complex. And upregulating the glutamate uptake increases the speed of synaptic transmission, but also decreases excitotoxicity from excessive levels of glutamate in the, staying in the synapse. So NUPEPT, NUPEPT has ampokine-like and racetam-like properties at the same time, meaning that it upregulates both glutamate and acetylcholine uptake in the postsynaptic neuron, which is uh, quite unique. Aniracetam also does both of those, but NUPEPT does it more potently. And so uh, there's research showing it as being neuroprotective because it is specifically protecting neurons from excitotoxicity damage, while typically you could decrease excitotoxicity from glutamate by just scavenging glutamate. And you can use things like oxaloacetate to do that, but then you're decreasing the speed of glutamatergic transmission. So NUPEP does this unique thing where it decreases excitotoxicity while increasing glutamatergic transmission, or at least supporting it. So NUPEP is a very interesting molecule from the standpoint of being both neuroprotective and increasing a number of interesting dimensions of learning, attention, and then one of the big kind of holy grails of the space is working memory. Yeah, I see a uh, big, in terms of holy grail, in terms of the future of this, is it, it's, it, it, it's obviously personalizing dosage because there's individual differences in, in genetics that, that help regulate uh, neurotransmitter production and, and how yes. environment interactions. So I'm sure you're working on that area, right? So we are, and you know, being able to have integrative doctors, psychiatrists, neurologists, general practitioners get support in better and better methodologies for uh, assessing brain chemistry and not just brain chemistry, but endocrinology, physiologic chemistry, et cetera, and then putting all that together and then being able to work to balance and optimize it. That's hugely important. And it's an area that, you know, we are working in and working with some small number of doctors to kind of prototype methodologies, but also working on structures that could be brought more widely. But there's also things that we, that could happen that are not doctor or therapist mediated. So imagine a portal where someone can take cognitive assessments online using best-in-class online cognitive assessment that has been correlated to best-in-class in-person assessment and shows high accuracy, and also online psychometric assessments. And 
so that people can see how their pattern recognition, their working memory, but also structured subjective insights into their you know, psychological state, predisposition, et cetera, and they could track that in time, then imagine that they could load up into that same portal and this is an adequately secure portal and they control their information so it's not being used by anybody, including the company, for reasons they don't want. Um, that they could upload their motion tracker data, their quantified self, their sleep tracker data, and then maybe even if they go get medical blood data, QEG data, and then the system doesn't just look at each one of the psychometrics and biometrics on their own in relationship to a reference range, but starts looking at what is that whole complex of data with all the other pieces tell us that is synergistically more than the separate pieces, right? Yeah, you can imagine like a Fitbit for this that like tracks this stuff throughout the day. Absolutely. Yeah. So we are looking at the intersection of quantified self data harvesting, better actual biometric diagnostics and better psychometric diagnostics, and then the synthesis of all that knowledge to then be able to customize protocols, both at the level of medical protocols where doctors can use it and at the level of just direct-to-consumer wellness protocols. Now, for that, imagine a version of Qualia that is fully customized where we get to take all this data from someone and then customize which chemicals and which amounts are in there. That requires a robotically automated compounding pharmacy that can make a custom formulation from a bunch of powders based on an AI generation of their specific formulation based on the biometric data. That's complex to do. It's a dream of ours. We want to mm-hmm. get there and be able to do it. And we've definitely worked on how to do that, but it's not right around the corner yet. But maybe in our lifetime? Oh, and much sooner than that. Are you familiar with Note 6 experience machine philosophical experiment? No. You know, he, he has this thought experiment. You know, imagine if we could hook you up to a machine and it gives you whatever is desirable or pleasurable anytime you want. It turns out most people would not want that because they want to. The will, there's something about the human will about suffering and overcoming suffering that makes us human, that makes us uh, want to, uh, that, that gives us a sense of meaning in life. Ultimately, the kind of vision you have for this world, which I share and I, and I think is really quite admirable, will have to go beyond uh, nootropics, right? I mean, it's only part of a whole system of cultural changes, of personal changes as well that is willed, right? Yeah. So let's just roughly break down four categories that we can look at this in terms of that are not reducible to each other, but are all inter-affecting. Sounds good. Let's think about human physiology, which includes our, you know, EEG pattern, computational neuroscience stuff, our neurochemistry, our endocrinology, the, our microbiome, our genetic expression, just all of the things that affect what you can think of as the human hardware. So there are human hardware predispositions for, I mean, if you just think about consciousness running on that hardware, then, con- then empathy runs on certain neural networks utilize, utilizing certain neurochemistry, et cetera, that can be up or down regulated. It can be downregulated by head trauma, by microbiome imbalances, by toxicity. You know, it can also be upregulated by a number of things. So let's think about the human hardware predispositions and capacities. Let's think about human software being our value systems, our worldview, our understanding of self, our understanding of other. Right now, they're they're not hardware software as totally distinct categories like they are in computers because, of course, they are dynamically inter-affecting each other continuously in real time. That's, I mean, it's a, the, the neuroplasticity where your thoughts are affecting physiology and your physiology is predisposing thoughts. It is, a, it is a completely intimate link between them, but we can still roughly think of those categories. So 
on the software side, we have education, we have media, we have psychology, we have personal development, psychotherapy, etc. On the hardware side, we have not just medicine, but the future of well-being optimization. And those are both at the level of the individual. Then at the level of beyond the individual, the level of the collective, kind of the hardware of the collective is infrastructure, how we meet our physical needs in relationship with the planet, water, energy, agriculture, transportation, manufacturing, waste management. And then the software of the collective is the agreement fields that run over that is uh, so- social structures, economics, governance, language. Ultimately, the hardware and the software of the individual and the collective all have to be upgraded in this for this kind of phase shift that humanity is entering into and upgraded towards um, omnipositivity, meaning that each of those four have things that affect human experience and human behavior. The environment, right, the lower right infrastructure, the, the built world and natural world environment affect human experience and affect human behavior. So do the social agreement fields, culture, economics, et cetera. Economics, what we incentivize very directly affects human behavior. What we have status allocated to, et cetera. Our definition of success in the individual kind of human software and our physiology. So we would say nootropics are just the first part we're getting into of human physiology, which is just one of these areas. And all of them are necessary, but only all of them together make sufficient. Yeah, no, I appreciate you outlining those for that topology. There are hard, there are things we can do software-wise that can show the same effects on biology and physiology as the nootropics in some cases. Like meditation can get you in a state of mind. It's, so there's different routes, perhaps, to this upgrade. There's not just a single route, and there are multiple routes that can get you to the same place, perhaps. Yes. Sometimes uh, same place and sometimes different but related but highly synergistic places when they come together. Oh, sure. Yeah, for sure. And that's the beauty of self-organizing systems. And I mean, that's the whole point of systems, right, is that you want to get to a point where they're all integrated and that the entropy is minimized. Well, you were just talking about whole systems and self-organization. Yeah. yeah. And why understanding how whole systems works leads to a perspective that emphasizes synthesis of all of the meaningful modalities. Correct. One of the concepts that we have to get over that is kind of reductionism in the negative sense rather than positive elements of the word is kind of looking for single bullet, silver bullet solutions, you know, a single molecule that's going to fix this whole thing. Well, it wasn't a single molecule that was off, right? It was a whole cascade of systemic effects that were off. Um, And so... Is it human hardware or is it human software or is it the environment? Or Well, it's usually all of them, right, in some kind of complex. So the question becomes, if someone's physiology is off, out of balance, it can lead to their psychology being out of balance, which can lead to their physiology being more out of balance and you get a vicious cycle. You can also get virtuous cycles of creating lift in any of the areas, making it easier for better behavior and function in those areas, creating more lift. So our interest is how do we stop? negative feedback cycles, and how do we promote virtuous cycles, positive feedback cycles between body, mind, relationship, environment, right? Between all of those interfecting complexes. And how do we meaningfully synthesize and support all of the modalities that are actually effective? No, that sounds like a great goal. I mean, you have our thoughts, you know, like cognitive behavioral therapy affects the way we frame things, the way we make meaning out of our experiences affects our cortisol production. It affects, you know, our negative reactions. So we, in all these different, they're bi-directional, you know, all these different ways. Daniel, thank you so much for your generosity and chatting with me today. And I do wish you all the best in your endeavors. Likewise, it was a blast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. 
If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.